welcome to this week's episode of Beyond the Index with me, Joe Wallet, and me, Tashar Shetty. And how are you this week, Tashar? There's been a lot going on, as always, let alone the monster rains here in India. Uh, it does really feel like uh, a bit of a pathetic fallacy we build towards the election next year. Oh yeah, absolutely. I'm feeling fantastic. And it seems that we're sort of entering uh, the great South Asian election season. Uh, obviously, next month we have the Maldives election, which would be an interesting sort of wider fight between India and China for influence in terms of the two parties representing uh, the two sides in Maldives right now. Uh, but we also have the Bangladesh election coming up, uh, which has seen uh, Sheikh Hasina possibly in some trouble, especially after the Americans have made certain statements regarding electoral freedoms uh, in Bangladesh. And as ever, you have the chaotic situation in Pakistan. I believe they're finally going to have some elections uh, there, although Shehbaz Sharif has uh, vacillated a little bit on that. So it's an exciting uh, next few months for South Asia. So a good time for all South Asia watchers. Absolutely. I think there's been no shortage of uh, big topics coming up. I mean, Bangladesh is certainly wants to watch. And we saw a call uh, on Wednesday um, sentencing the, the acting chairman of the, the main opposition party in the country, the Bangladesh Nationalist Party, to jail uh, in absentia. Um, Tariq Rahman, currently in, in the UK, and unlikely to be extradited to Bangladesh. But we are seeing kind of significant and growing opposition protests against the, against the Hasina uh, regime. Um, Bangladesh has struggled with with living sort of living costs, uh, like many countries in South Asia, over the last year or two. Uh, inflation. We saw DACA approach the IMF uh, for a loan. Um, you know, there's a lot going on uh, in Bangladesh, which is kind of cultivating this opposition movement. But then again, we have the Hasina, the Hasina government, um, and the Awani League crack down the opposition there. You know, we've seen thousands of journalists. Uh, opposition politicians all arrested, but the international community doesn't seem to be standing by. You know, we've seen that fairly heavy criticism from the US, uh, from the EU. Um, so Bangladesh, I think, is really the one to watch at, at the moment uh, as mm-hmm. soon as we head to that election next year. So, I mean, what have you been keeping an eye on this week uh, to show the news cycle? So, Joe. I think the story that I have to lead with is the explosion of religious violence ongoing in Haryana. The flare-up uh, started on the 31st of July in the majority Muslim New District in Haryana, which is actually right next to Delhi and Gurgaon, uh, when a Hindu religious procession that was passing by was allegedly attacked by certain miscreants from the Muslim community. This comes right on the heels of this horrific murder of three Muslims on, on a Jaipur Mumbai train by a railway constable, who, after shooting a senior officer, proceeded to walk down the train, singling out Muslim passengers and uh, ending his killing spree with an exhortation to both Pramodi and Yogi Adityanath in the next election. So the ensuing violence in Haryana uh, cost the lives of six people already, uh, as well as millions of rupees in damages as homes and small businesses were burnt down in the riots, but I think the striking part about this is that this is taking place right next to Delhi and Gurgaon, one of India's IT hubs, uh, in the backdrop, literally, of skyscrapers. You can see these riots going on. Uh, and where, in fact, leaders from around the world are set to meet soon for the final few meetings of India, India's G20 presidency. So since this is an evolving situation, uh, we're yet to understand exactly what's what's happened but it has sparked a conversation in the country, even amongst uh, ostensibly right-leaning people, about the effect that polarizing rhetoric has on relations uh, and communal harmony. So Joe, I thought this would be a good occasion to talk about the politics of polarization and how it functions in an extremely diverse and multi-ethnic country like India. 
So Joe, ever since India, uh, back in the 1930s, had any form of democratic elections, there have always been parties trying to polarize different communities. You see, the Indian National Congress, which is the oldest extant political party in India, was sort of a big tent party, which tried to represent all communities, religions, and ethnicities in a common struggle against the British and subsequently uh, in a developmentalist vision of India under Nehru. And essentially, all politics in India has been the spate of charismatic individuals or influential groups trying to polarize a section of the electorate to secure their loyalty and thereby gain political power. So the first great polarizing politician in India people forget was Mahmud Ali Jinnah, who successfully created a sense of fear and grievance in Muslim-majority provinces of British India, which actually led to the creation of Pakistan. But aside from religious lines, polarization in India can happen across a number of different axes and factors. Uh, for instance, you can polarize over language, like uh, Pati Sri Ramalu did in 1952, when he undertook a fast under death uh, for the creation of a Telugu-speaking state out of the erstwhile Madras presidency. It can also be overcast, uh, as we saw in Uttar Pradesh, where the Samajwadi Party and the BSP uh, wooed Muslim and Dalit voters respectively from the Congress to secure their own political bases. The funny thing is you can also have different parties attempting different kinds of polarization on the electorate at the same time. Uh, you saw this in the great Mandal versus Mandir debate of the 1990s, where you saw right-wing parties trying to consolidate a Hindu vote bank uh, by religious polarization, facing off against left-wing parties trying to polarize a community by their caste. So what we're seeing in India right now isn't exactly new, but rather a long and relatively successful strategy employed by all parties in India's political spectrum. This strategy does quite often result in violence and intercommunal disharmony, uh, like we saw in Assam with the brutal massacres there back in the 80s. But this process is usually resolved by the central government making some concessions. And once the people who polarize are in government, the benefits of power and the need to maintain law and order usually diminishes the strife and disorder. I, I do want to introduce one cautionary note, though. Usually you see a minority that's struggling for political power and the majority uh, government makes concessions. But it's very rare to see in any sort of form a majority government or majority community getting polarized against a minority community. To my mind, these usually result in a lot of violence down the line. Um, we've seen this in the many genocides and massacres across the world. And even in India, if you've seen uh, states like Punjab and Assam, majoritarian polarization doesn't really lead to good things in the long run. I mean, let's wait and watch. Um, hopefully, the situation will resolve itself. And perhaps with the BJP's dominance in elections for so long, they are and will continue to shift towards a more developmentalist vision rather than the polarization politics of the past. But what do you think? So I think one of the, the big things for me uh, that's been flagged this week is that the, the, the violence that occurred in Ariana uh, was near Gagawan, which is a, a kind of a satellite city as such outside of India's capital of Delhi. Um, we say satellite city by Indian terms, but for, for much of the world, this is a this is a major conurbation. And now Gagawan has been home to or is home to some of the world's largest uh, IT firms. You know, Microsoft have a major office there. Tata have a major office there. Infosys have a major office there. You know, IBM, you know, you name it. Um, you know, Gagawan has been home to some of the world's biggest biggest firms, biggest and best firms. And there've been a lot of questions asked this week that if India wants to become this global hub, uh, you know, to host the world's, you know, the world's biggest MNCs, you know, how is this kind of, as you say, polarizing violence going to affect that, you know, with such kind of major violence in the Ogogawa and, 
you know, eyebrows have certainly been raised at Google, at Deloitte, HSBC, you know, firms that are based there. I think whether, you know, whether it's said or not publicly here, um, there will be a desire to curb that violence rather rapidly to fight polarizing politics because of the impact that it will have on the Indian economy and attracting business from abroad. You know, India wants to be seen as a safe place for multinationals to come here. Uh, and as you say, when we're seeing fatalities and intercommunal violence, you know, miles away from this big IT hub, it doesn't send a good message to the world um, that India can be this big global business hub. So, so I think that's something as well to, to be conscious of uh, that this violence has taken place near Gagawan, as you mentioned. Um, I think the authorities will be keen to, to curb that quite quite imminently. Um, and then from my side, I think there's a, a big story breaking today as we record this section of the podcast, which is you know perhaps India's uh, most recognisable uh, opposition figure, Rahul Gandhi, um, who, who led the Congress Party in 2019 elections unsuccessfully uh, against the BJP, but, but has a big reputation abroad and certainly in the country, the country itself as well. Uh, has been cleared by India's Supreme Court uh, in a defamation case. Um, he was sentenced to two years imprisonment, uh, banned from politics, uh, after making a comment back in 2019 uh, where he alleged that all thieves have Modi uh, as their common surname. Um, a, a BJP MLA from Mr Modi, the Prime Minister's home state, uh, filed a defamation case against Mr Gandhi and he was then sentenced in Gujarat, uh, in Gujarat's High Court. Um, there was a lot of concern, not only in terms of a crackdown on democracy in the country, with the charges seen as very politically motivated, um, but that this would damage India's opposition ahead of next year's election, not having this big figurehead. Malikargan Kaje, now the or now will contest uh, for, for Congress, but having Mr. Gandhi's support and public presence would, would have been a big help for the party. So quite significant today that now Mr. Gandhi will be able to return to Parliament and will be able to contest the election next year. It certainly makes things more interesting from an opposition perspective ahead of India's election in 2024. It's funny because I heard a lot of chatter from both left and right wing organizations who take a certain dismal view of Mr. Gandhi, saying that if the BJP disqualifies him, it's uh, the Congress's biggest election asset because they've disqualified someone who's essentially uh, going to be tried and be portrayed as one-on-one -on -one against Modi uh, for contest of the prime ministership. Whereas if you disqualify him, the Congress can take that to the people and say, hey, look, the BJP is uh, cracking down on democracy. But it's a good thing that uh, the process of judiciary are working hopefully as intended. And uh, yeah, this is going to hopefully lead to Mr. Gandhi playing a big part in the upcoming 2024 elections. And to talk to you wish, next year we'll see the world's biggest democracy go to the polls for its quinquennial general election. I mean, the future of India is, is very much at stake. The country's ruling Bharatiya Janata Party, the BJP, led by Mr. Modi, uh, you know, they're expected widely to triumph in the election. You know, Mr. Modi still remains by far the most popular leader uh, in India. But what would that mean? You know, would a victory for the BJP lead to the continued removal of protectionist policies, for example, around manufacturing of IT? You know, will India become the leader of the global south, as, as Mr. Modi intends? You know, a global hub for renewable energy. You know, how would the party handle, as you say, this kind of polarizing politics or its foreign policy? You know, how will India like, continue to embrace this sort of multipolar policy where it seeks to kind of straddle the US and straddle Russia? You know, there's a lot of questions remain to be answered. And I think on the podcast, we're keen over the next year 
try and get some of the best figures or best speakers and those in the know uh, to give you give you the insights. So the most likely alternative appears to be a victory by coalition of India's leading opposition parties called the Indian National Development Inclusive Alliance, headed by the Congress Party, but also including Ahmadmi Party and the Indi- All India Trinamool Congress. There appears to be a recognition that alone, these parties couldn't defeat the BJP's electoral juggernaut. Uh, in 2019, for instance, the BJP achieved 303 seats, and the next best, the Congress Party, achieved 52. Bear in mind, I believe it takes 60 seats in the parliament to be named official head of opposition. So the fact that the Congress couldn't achieve that after such a long streak of governance is quite disturbing for the Congress. At this stage, though, regarding the alliance, it's unclear what policies this union would propose, a criticism that has also been levied at the BJP, or how the alliance with all its varied parties is going to govern India. They're next set to meet on the 25th of August. I mean, it's certainly an interesting development. We haven't seen all oh, these parties with such significance coming together before. But I think, as you say, the key question is, you know, how do they, you know, how would they divide power? How would they actually rule the country when, when, when it comes down to it, they have very different policies at, at grassroots levels, let alone major rivalries, or in certain instances, dislike for each other's leading politicians. But in this week's episode, we're delighted to welcome a figure with unrivaled insights into next year's election. And what comes next to India in 2024 and beyond? I, it's extremely rare to to have a, a senior politician from India's leading BJP or India's ruling BJP, I should say, to come and speak publicly, certainly at this length. Stay tuned. So Krishna Sagarao is a chief spokesperson from India's ruling Bharatiya Janata Party, the BJP. Mr. Rao hails from the southern Indian state of Telangana, one of the key drivers of India's economy. He attended Harvard Business School, uh, where he's regularly invited back as alumni to discuss the key political and economic themes in India, and is the current managing director and CEO of Yukti Global Services, one of India's leading providers of global capability centers to foreign firms. It really is a pleasure to have you on the podcast this week, Mr. Rao. How are you? Doing great, Joe. Thank you very much for having me on your show. Looking forward uh, for your question so that I can take it forward. Excellent. And where are you in the world at the moment? I, I know you, you travel regularly both within India uh, and, and internationally. Are you at home or, or are we overseas at present? No, I'm at Hyderabad, right in the middle of the action. We have uh, elections coming up in the next five months, so preparing for it. Brilliant. Yeah, well, well certainly I think we'll get into um, as we, we get through the podcast. Um, but first of all, I think we'd like to take a bit of a sort of a grand scope or, or bigger picture view I mean, could you give us an overview of what we're likely to see from the BJP in terms of their organisation, in terms of steps and policies that the party might take in the run-up to the 2024 election? See, BJP is the largest political organisation in the country, not the world. However, we have a very hard framework in terms of how we conduct our organisational process. Uh, it is uh, It actually is progressive in terms of how it gets gets to be updated every year. While the framework remains the same, the talent pool which is accessed every year to change the entire organizational leadership, right from the state executive body and state president all the way to the national president and his executive body, which is for the office banners of the party. So very recently, the annual affair of appointing and reappointing many political leaders across the spectrum of the party, as I told you, State is the unit which we start from and all the way to the national unit, you know, is what the change of leadership, change of guard happened. And uh, in that process, 
Uh, we have uh, the national president who got an extension of his current term. The current term of a president actually uh, is about three years and then the party chooses to either extend it or replace the president after the term is finished. So some states, the term is finished and the presidents have been interchanged. Sometimes new people, sometimes the old presidents will return back. And uh, in reference to that in Telangana, we had a change. A former president today is now uh, the president of the party, uh, Mr. Kishan Reddy. And he also happens to be the union minister uh, for about three cabinet positions. Uh, and like that, I mean, down south, there were two, three changes. And in, uh, across the country, there were about 11 to 12 changes which happened recently. Uh, so this is one kind of a rejig which is happening. It is not specific to the elections coming up, but it is a regular organizational churn process. But when it comes to the organization getting ready for the elections, uh, there are no policies as such, but there will certainly be a plan of action for both short-term and uh, long-term, in the sense there are about seven to eight states going uh, for elections before the general election. So there is a, a big-time readiness uh, and uh, a huge plan of action for each state to win. And after that, obviously, we'll go into general election more in post-January. Right. And it's interesting because um, I think it was Salvador Babonis who said that uh, the difference in the BJP is to American listeners is that the BJP is actually India's first truly modern political machine, uh, which has led to a lot of its success, amongst other factors. Uh, but we've recently seen the formation of the Indian National Development Inclusive Alliance, uh, INDIA, which consists of opposition parties, uh, including the Congress and regional parties who have come together uh, to oppose the BJP-led NDA in 2024. You know, this type of alliance is unprecedented in recent times. Do you think the alliance could challenge the BJP next year? And how important is this grouping or this alliance uh, in the context of Indian politics? See, the alliances have formed even in earlier elections is not unprecedented. This is not the first time there is a alliance to alliance kind of a electoral strategy. But what is uh, very amusing is the acronym they have picked up and uh, they're, they're actually trying to play a, a, a low-ball game because uh, just by having the name changed from UPA, I mean, they haven't even explained why UPA has been changed because the UPA is a current alliance where most of the players who are now in INDIA alliance were also there in UPA. So what is the game in changing the name? That is the biggest question which BJP asked and challenged the INDIA alliance because I don't want to call it an India alliance. Which is, which is not, because it doesn't represent India. I mean, somebody can tomorrow create an alliance in USA and say uh, that name of the alliance is USA. So basically, uh, while we neglected that in terms of we don't want to talk too much about it for all the right reasons, it actually uh, is quite juvenile and at one end, on the other end, very mature. Uh, just to add on to that, and it's actually funny because I think there is a situation in America where there's a party called the American Independent Party, and all people who consider themselves independent accidentally vote for that in the uh, presidential elections. Uh, but I, I just want to ask because I think that they have been, you know, groupings or alliances of political parties uh, in India before. But you usually also see this sort of a third front uh, movement, which are non-BJP, non-Congress parties who want a gun for prime ministership, basically. This time, parties that you normally see on the third front are actually grouping together with the Congress. So is that something of a concern um, for, for the BJP? No, basically, this alliance is the first alliance, right? I mean, 
is UPA equivalent. And the third front hasn't actually taken off. The non-Congress, non-BJP front is completely, uh, not. I mean, I won't say not united. First of all, they don't even have a shape or form. Uh, for instance, BRS, which is which was called uh, TRS before in the south, and uh, the DMK is all right there with INDA alliance, but the uh, Orissa party, BJD, is not with anybody so far, and uh, the BSP is not with anybody so far, YSRCP is not with anybody so far. So they are basically standalone at this point of time on a status quo of their own individual party identities. But you have asked me uh, earlier a question on how big will be the fight between INDIA Alliance and uh, us, NDA? I wish to tell you that uh, as on today, even after two or three months of these alliance talks, they haven't decided on who's going to lead this alliance. There is not one single leader acceptable to these uh, 18, 19, or sometimes they claim 23 parties. So you can understand right at the beginning, are, their walls are cracking. Uh, you know, it's it will fall like a pack of cards uh, running close to the elections or even post-election because the numbers are not going to come anywhere close to what they are imagining. So this is not a united front and this is not a united alliance and a one leader. So if there are four leaders or five leaders, the rest of the folks won't even get together. If you decide on one leader, uh, the entire uh, alliance will collapse because they don't want to work under one leader again. So basically, there is no singular entity which is fighting us. These are all 23 different parties. They they will fumble and fall at, uh, the, at any given chance of seat sharing because they'll not be able to arrive at that point. And if they are not seat sharing, how is it an alliance? John, I think you raised some some very good points there, uh, Krishna. I mean, it's still unclear at this this point in time exactly how uh, these framework of opposition parties are going to come together, both to contest the elections and also in terms of, of policies. I mean, to me, as someone who's who's followed and covered Indian politics for for many years, um, you know, I struggle to see how you know some of these big figureheads in the Congress Party, whether you're looking at someone like Rahul Gandhi or or, or the new president Malikagan Kaje, is going to come together with you know Mamata Banerjee in, in West Bengal or, or with the AAP. Um, it seems unclear to me how, how these big egos are, are going to work together. Um, but that said, it is it is fairly significant that we have got to this stage. But certainly one to watch, I think, over the, over the upcoming months. Um, and then back to back to looking at, at the BJP. I mean, I think uh, you know the world's eyes are on India at the moment, as as you well know. Um, you know, phenomenal interest in in India, both when it comes to the country's economy, when it comes to the country's foreign policy. Um, you know, could you give us a bit of a steer about you know what might the electorate or what might the world expect in the short or medium term? Um, after the election, you know, what might the BJP focus on when it comes to foreign policy or, or fiscal or financial policy? You know, what might be the priorities there? Yeah, to address your first part of the question, uh, this alliance which is supposed to be fighting together against NDA. It doesn't have what it takes to win, number one. Number two, they don't have a political agenda. They have a personal agenda, which is against one leader, Narendra Modi. So that is not enough, as you rightly said. What are the policies which differentiate it from Bharatiya uh, Janata Party-led NDA? You know that is very essential to understand that they are fighting a, uh, an empty battle, and uh, whatever they are uh, targeting is only Narendra Modi's leadership. Having said that, uh, that is actually purposeless because uh, you don't you don't hit a uh, the figurehead of the country, the prime minister of the country, and uh, you tend to feel that you're going to get. Uh, the general public's votes. The general public need to have uh, hot-button issues of this country, the challenges uh, in the country is facing, the challenges they are facing should be addressed by the political parties which are trying to fight an incumbent government. 
which the alliance seems to be missing on. Now, coming to the second part of your question about the economic foreign policy. Uh, see, the, the economy of India today uh, is almost reflective and mirroring what the economy of China was in late 1970s and early 80s. Everyone in the world who has a business unit, which is successful, would want to have, uh, you know, their unit operating either for back-end services or uh, for trade or for manufacturing in India. So we are looking at the entire world trying to come into India to set up their base in, in the country or a global capability center if it is about the IT, uh, IT categorized companies. But having said that, what brings us the capability of driving the economy to $5 trillion in the next three years, uh, as Narendra Modi, the Prime Minister, envisions, is the, the base of this economy is broad and the domestic consumption is humongously high when you compare to anybody else in the world. And then we have the talent pool of youngsters. So there is a huge compounding effect of these three factors in the economic space and that is why we are going to number third very soon. Coming to the foreign policy, India's foreign policy has never been knee-jerk. It has never been on the premise of one-night stand. It has always been a long-term vision-based and interest-based and choice-based foreign policy. And also understand the foreign policy as something which is here to stay as long as the country stays. So it is an eternal relationship, which uh, you know, which you can see. You look at the legacy of our foreign policy, which will come across very clearly. So coming to South India, you know, um, one of the things that I uh, always want to emphasize to foreign listeners is how different and diverse India actually is. Uh, you know, because being South Indian myself, a lot of people think of India generally, you know, as you know, Hindi speaking, you know, uh, perhaps Punjabi culture, but it, South India is, is is so diverse and different. So I wonder if the BJP, which, you know, has limited electoral success in South India historically, as someone who's in the organization, what do you think the priorities and the aspirations of the voters in the five South Indian states, six we had Goa, are different as compared to, let's say, North India? And what policies is the BJP or what strategies is the BJP employing to address those uh, regional aspirations? It's a very important question. See, India is a singular unit. As a party and the ideology of party never differentiates India to be north, south, east, west, in unless it is about just a geographical connotation. India considers all regions and all union territories and all border states actually have more commonalities than differences. But when it comes to electoral difference, certainly south has a different flavor of electoral politics. And that is uh, maybe because of the legacy of the southern, you know, southern India and especially the legacy of the British Empire, which ruled this part very differently than the central north and west. The education in South India and the, uh, the orientation towards what is very essentially uh, the politics and its fabric in terms of what the politics must constitute uh, in, in terms of public interest uh, is quite high. I mean, talking about political uh, naivety is uh, little less in South. And also, it is very essential to understand, South has a regional domination in terms of the political ecosystem. Most of the South Indian states have very strong regional parties. And these parties actually have very intrinsic connect, both emotional, physical, to the framework of each of the constituencies in that state 
especially when you look at even uh, example as an example telangana has uh, a leader who has fought for about 20 years along with all of i mean the entire political system in this state of telangana has fought for the independence of the state uh, and they wanted the demerger of the state from andhra pradesh to telangana being a singular state by itself but what happens is the regional party when it gets the success it got gets to get the whole credit instead of a part credit because even bharatiya janata party fought for telangana we are the ones who actually supported the bill and got it done at the parliament both houses because congress didn't had that strength in both the houses to move the bill we don't get the credit so you can understand as a national party we are not as connected the masses and we do not have a full of political maneuvering and of electoral management at the ground uh, like the the family dynasts in south have and the regional parties as when i said family dynasts the reason i took this example is to understand that the regional political parties which are strong in south actually hinder the progress of bharatiya janata party because uh, we are too far away from the field in terms of uh, quick decision making advantage which the regional parties have headquartered in in each state in in their own states and while we have little bit of disconnect from the state units to the national unit you know it's interesting you mention the the regional disconnect because i think it was something that foreigners don't quite understand i think lee kuan yew uh, the former prime minister of singapore he mentioned that uh, you know a prime minister sitting in delhi who perhaps speaks hindi you know can reach out to say 40 50 60 percent even of the population but then what happens when you come to say tamil nadu or telangana right and mr modi is a redoubtable campaigner i mean have you all seen his speeches in hindi uh, but the question is how does one uh, spread one's message uh, in south india so you know given the differences between uh, the linguistic and cultural landscape of south india as uh, compared to say the hindi heartland how does the bjp plan to effectively communicate the national narrative while also addressing the regional aspirations and identities uh, in south india because you know south india also has a lot of um, economic structural differences as compared to north india so presumably the policies and the messaging would also uh, be different and just as an addendum to that question um you know we've recently seen the bjp uh, lose in karnataka you know one of the few states that has had a uh, effective presence to the congress so maybe you could talk about that a little bit and what is the party learned from its defeat you know in the elections moving forward see i think we we learn more in a failure than when you succeed so failures do failures do teach a lot and bharatiya janata party keeps learning as it's an evolving progressive party karnataka was cert- certainly a learning and uh, it also establishes the theory which i proposed that uh, electorally south is different from north and uh, we have to not resist this fact we have to accept it so that we can move on with a differential electoral strategy in south but sometimes you know organizationally the old beliefs get uh, rooted and then people don't want to change people don't want to look at the present from the other side so uh, i think that is the biggest lesson we should learn uh, if we have learned that i think we'll look at the future south indian states which are coming up for elections with a different set of eyes uh, telangana is coming up and i would personally in the interest of the party uh, wish to see the national party look at telangana politics differently than it used to do before Uh, and i told you about the challenges in terms of what the disconnect can do uh, in any state and especially the southern states and uh, so far we have been using translator uh, to get the prime minister's speeches translated in local language but as you rightly pointed out it's a challenge and it is not as smooth as 
how he would talk in uh, in the heartland and how they get connected to him in, in, you know emotionally uh, and they understand every word he speaks uh, that handicap remains as long as narendra modi ji learns five different languages regionally which is impossible so we have a challenge there and uh, the plan for the party currently obviously cannot be discussed the strategy cannot be discussed uh, with the media but i think there is a robust plan which is being drafted and uh, formulated and a good strategy to implement uh, is being designed to ensure that uh, we don't get into the challenges we have got into in karnataka uh, now coming to the extended question of uh, the economic and the political differences which we have in southern states as i earlier told you that uh, the education level and the uh, the level of uh, uh, hard working educated in especially higher education uh, in terms of uh, uh, masters and phd's this kind of uh, highly energized highly educated uh, young people uh, become the anchor for the kind of politics which plays in the entire south region and uh, we wish to certainly get there here in terms of uh, how and what narendra modi ji's government is doing at the center and for the entire country and uh, we wish to utilize our uh, resources to ensure that we reach out to the educated communities more effectively and uh, talking about uh, the economic growth what happens is uh, the vision of the past leaders in one particular regional state can be progressively forward only with a uh, effective administration at the center and effective governance at the center if it was not for pm modi's governance telangana wouldn't be becoming whatever it is becoming right now uh, a second uh, it destination only after karnataka in about 15 20 years now so it is the vision of prime minister narendra modi and it is also the capabilities of a particular state like telangana or andhra karnataka which are attracting the investments and uh, indirectly or directly central government is completely involved in this and the policies of the country are impacting the growth of karnataka and telangana in terms of the industry and especially the it so you cannot just rule out that bharatiya janata party has nothing to do with uh, the growth of telangana and karnataka or any other destination for both industry and it uh, we are 100% involved and the policies are enabling uh, the uh, the field level growth the progressive industrial policy the progressive taxation policy and the labor policies are all working together to enable states which are already walk the path so i think a running theme through through our podcast uh, when we when we've looked at india uh, in recent weeks and months has been you know this phenomenal economic growth and and where the country goes goes from here as as you rightly say every kind of mnc is looking for a foothold or to increase its presence in in india uh and mr modi's recent visit to the us was was no different there in terms of the visit bringing about a, a slew of exciting investment deals um now we also heard during the visit that there was there was criticism of india's human rights record i think sort of most in a most high profile sense in barack obama um you know the us has also commented recently uh on violence in in manipur i mean what would what would be your response or the party's response to criticism of india's human rights record from some like the us or from the west uh and over ongoing violence in manipur it's ironic and uh it is unprecedented also that the ambassador of usa in india has volunteered to help uh ease the situation in manipur that was not expected and that is not in the regular lines of diplomacy when you are the ambassador of a foreign nation uh, especially uh, not the largest democracy in the world 
or uh, you don't interfere with the internal situations, both political, physical, geographical, religious issues uh, of a nation. We don't do that. India has not talked about the BLM, the Black Lives Matter issue. India has not talked about uh, American sojourns, uh, you know, in Syria or Afghanistan uh, or anywhere else. But um, along with their alliances, they they get to fix a nation. They decide to fix that nation, and eventually, that nation actually doesn't even have the strength to stand by itself. Afghanistan is an example. So there are many examples, but India through its official channels, has never talked about it, has never offered help to America to fix a problem. Which we don't talk about their social issues. We don't talk about their human rights violations, wherever in the world they uh, indulge in. As I told you earlier, we're a very mature nation, uh, and we are a very we understand the diplomacy, we understand the best practices, and we also understand uh, it is impossible to police the world in the kind of uh, world, the framework we are in today, and you know what's happening in the Europe. Uh, what's happening with Ukraine and Russia. And so far, we haven't indulged in any political game, unlike some countries. So, uh, it is not a good taste uh, for America, Obama, or anybody else to make such comments when they are not above, or they should not be giving sermons to a country like India, whose uh, record uh, over the period of the last 75 years has been exemplary. We have attacked any other nation. We haven't preempted a strike. We have only defended when challenged. And uh, not just for 75 years, for a thousand years, this civilization has never uh, initiated a war. And then the secularism, the fabric of our civilization. Uh, there was no need for a constitution. For 5,000 years, we stayed together, uh, different races, different religions, different ethnicities. So if Manipur is happening, Manipur uh, you know, is a unique story, which is underway right now. And uh, it is a serious issue. But India is capable of handling these kind of issues. We have handled even the biggest partition of our own country, uh, where the country was, uh, you know, made into three pieces on the basis of a religious identity. So we are experienced. We have gone through the pain. And we know how to handle crisis. So we don't need uh, foreign nations. And we don't need former presidents to give us service. Coming to, let's say, Telangana-specific issues, Telangana is due for the assembly elections uh, in December of this year. And uh, I recently spoke to a major British investor who opined that Telangana was among the most investor-friendly states in India today. And we see a lot of investment coming to Telangana from companies like Foxconn, um, who recently committed to investing uh, $500 million. So with the state elections just around the corner, what is the BJP offering as an alternative to the ruling uh, BRS uh, in terms of policies? And how does it plan to improve Telangana's economy uh, while improving social indicators for ordinary citizens of the states? And uh, what lessons do you think that other Indian state governments could learn from Telangana? See, Telangana, I mean, I'm, I'm very happy that we wish to congratulate uh, whoever is responsible for that kind of growth which is happening at this point in time. Uh, but let me assure you that if it was a BJP government, we could have attracted maybe 50 times more. Because there is a state government which is of one party and there is lack of coordination from that particular party with the central government much, uh, it lacks the kind of a speed with which it should have grown because Hyderabad and Telangana actually has humongous potential of the young talent uh, and highly skilled talent uh, which you are aware uh, goes all over the world for jobs. And we could have held them back here uh, if at all the governance was uh, as expected. 
Unfortunately, the talent brain drain actually might get some receipts from abroad. But other than that, uh, the state is missing out on the top talent, uh, which is going out of the state. That we could have arrested because um, Bharati Janata Party uh, and the central government, if together we were to work out strategy and uh, we were to work out the industrial growth and IT growth strategy, uh, we could uh, compound this growth uh, like no, no one else's business. And uh, another point I wish to make, while I have already appreciated the efforts, whatever little they're doing for the state, this state was an IT destination right from 90s, early 90s. Since then, it is a progressive growth continuing regime after regime. And this is the time when uh, the investment flows have increased multifold because of Narendra Modi's great work in all the domains which I have spoken to you about in economy. And the investment flows from outside the country has increased. Uh, obviously, it will go to states which are ready for investment in terms of the digital infrastructure, in terms of social, political infrastructure. Step. So it is coming to Telangana. So I, I'm not denying them the credit they're due. But at the same time, things would have been much better and uh, more bigger if BJP was in government here in Telangana. So what did you think uh, of Mr. Rao uh, this week? Well, you know, it's interesting, Joe, because I think the theme that I wanted to focus on is how is the BJP, which has largely been a North Indian, let's say, Hindi heartland-centered party, at least that's where its political base is, how does it attempt to deal with diversity and variation in Indian states? For instance, it has managed this quite successfully in the Northeast, where the BJP is in power either by itself or uh, in alliance with the regional party in almost all of the seven or eight Northeast Indian states. Uh, but in the South, it's been facing a lot more difficulty. And from Mr. Rao's interview, it's kind of obvious why that is. Mr. Modi's charm and his uh, charisma do not translate very well in the four South Indian states with the different languages. Also, South Indian states have different priorities, as Mr. Rao clearly indicated. So it would be interesting to see how the BJP manages to develop a national narrative that also has appeal to the South Indian states. And I suppose we'll have to see in next uh, few weeks or months how that narrative is going to evolve. But yeah, it's going to be a tough fight for the BJP, I think, Joe. Absolutely. I mean, obviously, understandable, I think, that, that Krishna wasn't able to perhaps give us kind of any secret details of this, this BJP, of the BJP's new plan for Southern India. But I think very interesting to hear that certainly one uh, in formulation. Um, not something that I particularly read much about in the media here. So I guess for our listeners, want to. Well, just certainly keep an eye on, as you say, the party's going to have to make inroads into southern India to, to kind of maintain its its hold on power. Um, I think it was, it was also, I think, pertinent and very important, uh, I think, for many of our listeners to hear Mr. Ralph's reaction to criticism from the US uh, of BJP policy. You know, something that I'm often asked about here, you know, what is, what is the feeling in Delhi towards the US? And I think his, his comments uh, go a long way to show that changing relationship. You know, India very much sees itself as an equal to the U.S. And I, I think certainly is well aware that the U.S. needs to lead in India, you know, whether it be strategically looking at security in, in the Indo-Pacific or both in its economy and kind of growing and exporting Indian U.S. goods as well. This is the key takeaway for me as well with the shifting sands of geopolitics. I think it's very evident to me uh, when I do speak to, to an individual like Mr. Rao, you know, how strongly these feelings are held in Delhi and within the BJP. It certainly is a time of change, and it's not one that Washington should should overlook. 
Yeah, absolutely. And it brings to mind something I read uh, from a U.S. columnist. I believe it was Noah Smith that the U.S. has never historically had to engage with another power um, as an equal, uh, either as a rival uh, or as an ally. But when you see uh, China, which is four times the population of the U.S., the U.S. actually could very much be the minor power in this 21st century equation. So it's interesting to see how they learn to deal with India, not as a country dependent on the U.S. or its security, uh, but rather as an equal partner moving forward. But yeah, it's going to be an interesting century, Joe. So yeah, we're here to watch that. Absolutely. And a huge thank you uh, to everyone for, for tuning in this week. As I say, you know, it's a, a real rarity to have such a senior figure uh, in his ruling party come to speak at, at such length about policy and about plans as the future. So I hope it's, as our listeners, um, that you enjoyed tuning in and, and you learned a couple of things uh, from, from Mr. Rao about what to expect uh, over the upcoming months as, as we head to the election. Thank you and stay safe until next time.